Prologue, Giving a Voice to Living Songs At more than one point in his life, writer and political activist Woodrow Wilson, Woody Guthrie, July 14, 1912 to October 3, 1967, broke the world of song into distinct categories. There are two kinds of songs, living songs and dying songs. The dying songs, the ones about champagne for two and putting on your top hat, they tell you that there's nothing to be proud of in being a worker, but that someday if you're good and work hard, you'll get to be the boss. Then you can wear white tie and tails and have songs made up about you. I like living songs that make you take pride in yourself and your work, songs that try to make things better for us, songs that protest all the things that need protesting against. Too often, Guthrie believed, the popular media of his day only offered Americans dying songs, those voicing giddy visions of glamour and romance, a carefree image far removed from the experiences of the majority of American people listening to the radios and phonographs. He further argues, I did not hear any songs of protest on the radio. I did not hear any of them in the movie house. I did not hear a single ounce of our history being sung on the nickel jukebox. The big boys don't want to hear our history of blood, sweat, work, and tears, of slums, bad housing, diseases, big blisters, or big calluses, nor about our fight to have unions and free speech and a family of nations. Even while recognizing that much of America's commercialized music excluded dissenting voices and tranquilized the populace, he also believed that living songs could fight against the forces of conformity and complacency and could be a powerful means for equitable societal change. He writes, Music is a weapon, the same as a gun, and can be used by the slave just the same as by the big boss. For him, songs have the potential to point out the wrongs done to the majority of Americans even as they could also express a vision of a better, more just nation. As Guthrie was born on Bastille Day and named after Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic presidential candidate at the time, it might seem that he would be automatically inclined to mix dissent and history into his writing. But it was not an inborn sense of justice that pushed him to make the statements he did, to protest the ills he saw. Hard experience helped direct his work. His own family, once graced with a solid middle-class position, fell into ruin in the 1920s, suffering an economic decline shared by many others in the rural South and Southwest after World War I. When the Great Depression came to the rest of America in the 1930s, the people whom Guthrie knew best had already experienced almost a decade of decreasing return on their labors. While living in Texas during the height of the Depression, He also felt the sting of black dust storms raging the land and saw the plight brought on by drought in the southwestern plains. From his travels out of this area and to the west coast, he learned of displaced farmers from other states and regions, tying their struggles together, especially in the factories in the field, described by the social critic Kerry McWilliams in 1939. Guthrie's understanding of the struggles of other working-class people grew during the 1940s as he continued traveling the nation and encountering lumbermen, steelworkers, sailors, miners, and other laborers, eventually realizing that only a privileged few never knew hunger or hardship. During the same time period, in part due to his encounters and friendships with a variety of white and black artists with leftist political and social views, he also began to break away from the prevailing prejudices of his time and to advocate for racial groups other than his own.
Educated by his experiences and companions, he came to link the entirety of America's underclass together. In time, Guthrie slowly began to realize that the diverse and downtrodden of America had a huge story of their own to tell, one that was worth the telling.